Good morning. This is Good Times Podcast, and I am continuing on reading the book Sun uh, Shining Like the Sun, um, Finding God Face to Face by David Winkle. Winkle, and I'm continuing on today with more reading from the book Shining Like the Sun. And this uh, title is, this part is The Discipline of Biblical Theology. As mentioned above, the discipline of biblical theology is required to trace this theme of meeting God face to face through the Bible. The discipline of biblical theology seeks to describe and apply the themes of biblical authors throughout the whole canon of Scripture. Underneath this approach is the belief in the unity of Scripture as a product of one triune God who used various authors and their respective unique attributes. The canon of Scripture has diversity because it was written by different people at different times and places. The canon of Scripture also has unity because those who wrote it were uniquely inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they did. And in a nutshell, the discipline of biblical theology seeks to give equal weight to uniqueness of the human authors and the unity wrought by the divine author of Scripture. A helpful image for understanding the discipline is a woven tapestry. As a tapestry, Scripture provides several interwoven narratives and texts of various genres. These different genres might be described as various textures. When one text uses another textual source, this is intertextuality or intertexture. The patterns, repetition, narrative progress, and other literary features constitute the intertexture, the social and cultural aspects of the original audience constitute the cultural texture. The rhetorical dynamics related to individuals, groups, shared interests, and conflict is labeled as the ideological texture. Lastly, the Godward aspects of the text that communicate elements of the Trinity is labeled the sacred texture. The study will seek, this study will seek to integrate and connect all of these various textures, even if implicitly. Developing a broad sense of biblical theology is important because the theme of the shining face appears in genres as variegated as the Pentateuch, wisdom literature, and Paul's letters. If we imagine that the scripture is like a large tapestry with various genres, features, or textures, we can also imagine that themes run through the various books like threads. These themes are made up of similar words and concepts. Although this focus on themes is largely literary, this is not meant to minimize historical matters. What we find as we trace the theme of the shining face is that this phenomena appears at major events in salvation history, such as the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai. Our investigation will seek to integrate historical background information and literary elements in its expanded form 
The thesis of this present volume is this. A discernible thread runs through the tapestry of scripture in which those who encounter the God of Israel face to face will be changed. There is always a danger that those engaging in biblical theology might ignore certain textual datum that is conceptually related rather than lexically related. The path taken by my study is to establish a foundation in the narratives of Genesis and then look at the instances where a face-to-face -face meeting with God is explicitly stated in the text. The narrow focus on a specific expression allows us to trace a single ribbon through the tapestry of scripture in an inaccessible way. As we trace the face-to-face -face encounters with God, we will be doing so throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is also called a canonical or whole Bible approach because we are beginning with the theological unity and the integrity of Scripture. This reflects the fact that God inspired all Scripture and stands behind it as its divine author. Together, all the books of the Bible constitute a single canon or standard of measurement, which alone is written is the written word of God. A canonical approach is also keen to listen to the progress of divine revelation from Genesis to Revelation. The progress or development in Revelation is based on the fact that God has spoken and that the focus of this revelation was Christ. This means that our study will seek to identify where God progressively revealed more details about Christ until he publicly announced the presence of his kingdom. When I use the term biblical theology in this volume, I'm referring primarily to the history of salvation or the progressive movement of God in history to redeem and save his people for his glory. This process of connecting the dots in the history of salvation is descriptive and historically considered. The end result will hopefully be of value to the church and the academy. The motif of Yahweh's shining face is related to the much larger theme of Yahweh's body. This language is often called anthropomorphic because it attributes the qualities of a human body to God who is spirit. When God appears as a person in the Old Testament, this is called theophany or Christoph Christophany. The larger theme of Yahweh's body in the Old Testament includes God's ears, 2 Samuel 22.7, 2 Kings 19-28, eyes, Deuteronomy 11.12, Psalm 34.15, etc. Hair, Daniel 7.9, lips, Psalm 89.34, Isaiah 11.4, mouth, 2 Samuel 22.9, Job 15.30, and nostrils or nose, 2 Samuel 22, 9, and 16. These select references indicate how large a theme really is, and an analysis of all these parts is beyond the scope of this study. The few instances where I deviate to consider other body parts is because they are parallel to our related to Yahweh's face. What this study does do is connect the face to a holistic understanding of the image of God in first chapter through the study, a study of Genesis 1 through 4. 
In order to accurately follow this thread of meeting God face-to-face -face through Scripture, we first need to establish the context by looking at creation in the fall in the first five chapters of Genesis. The first chapter specifically examines the fall in the Garden of Eden, and in it effects upon the first human family in the first four chapters of Genesis, also known as Book of Origins. The first chapter is foundational because... It establishes the salient point that all people are made in the image of God and are uniquely capable of physically embodying God's own glory in their body. The second chapter examines the narrative of the patriarch Jacob, Israel, and his face-to-face -face wrestling match with Yahweh at the river Jabbok. The third chapter focuses on Moses' participation in the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai and his shining face that reflected the glory and holiness of God. And the fourth chapter explores how Moses' shining face and Yahweh's face became integrated into the messages of the prophets during Israel's wilderness wanderings. During Israel's wilderness wanderings. The fifth chapter considers those who met God face to face during the time of the judges of Israel. The sixth chapter explores the myriad ways that God's face is portrayed in the Psalms, and it looks for development in the way that the Psalms portray Yahweh's face. The seventh chapter considers the rule of Yahweh's face as Israel confronted, confronted endured, and hoped amidst exile from the promised land. The eighth chapter marks a major turning point from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It elaborates on what it means to see God in the face of Christ. The ninth chapter focuses on Jesus' shining presence on the Mount of Transfiguration. The tenth chapter explores the various ways that shining face motif impacted the early church as a community of the New Covenant. The eleventh chapter demonstrates that radiating face of Jesus plays a central role in new heavens and the new earth where God's people dwell forever. The final chapter provides a conclusion that highlights some of the major findings of our study. Together, these chapters span four contours of the grand biblical narrative, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Chapter 1. Adam and Eve, face to face with God in the Garden of Eden. The importance and nature of God's people meeting him face to face can only be properly understood when we go back to the beginning and the narrative of creation in Genesis 1 to 2 and the aftermath of the fall in Genesis 4. My chapter is intended to be foundational for the rest of the study that follows. The single thesis of this book is that those who meet God face to face are changed. In the end of this grand biblical story, we will see God's people reflecting his glory and holiness in their face and body. But how is this change possible? This chapter seeks to answer this question by building a theological foundation that establishes humanity as unique and exceptional among all of creation. It is helpful to pause and observe that certain 
Literary features such as the repetition of divine nature names indicate that Genesis 1-4 is, as a whole, a book of origins. Ian Douglas Wilson even suggests that divine face in the Hebrew Bible has its origins in Genesis 3. The origin of humanity and the destruction wrought by Adam and Eve's rebellion against God demonstrates that holiness or sin affects the whole body and is communicated through the face. When God addresses the members of the first human family, he demonstrates concern for their internal state as well as their outward expression of their relationship with him. Face to face with God in the garden. The introductory scenes of Genesis are characterized by Adam and Eve in the presence of the Lord, enjoying and tending to the garden. The pleasant tone is clear. The very sight of Eve causes Adam to break out into poetry. This, at last, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Genesis 2, 23. Before Satan enters the picture, the Bible narrates one last description of the primordial state. Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 2.25 Before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve had an uninterrupted relationship with each other and with God. So the last scripture of Adam and Eve in their pre-fall state emphasized that their lack of awareness that they were naked in their freedom from shame about their unclothed bodies. One conclusion to underscore is that their purity before God was expressed through their bodies. They are free from the knowledge of sin, and this meant that they embodied holiness. Unfortunately, this state did not last. Eve's response to the serpent's temptation and Adam's lack of leadership resulted in them both sinning against the Lord by eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After they both ate, the Bible describes a mental or psychological state they, that consisted of a new state of awareness. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. So Genesis and Genesis 3, 7, this rebellion against God immediately plunged them into spiritual darkness as their freedom from the knowledge of sin dissipated. The next effect is a response to their internal state of shame, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis 3, 7. This external covering of their bodies reflected the shame and knowledge of sin in their minds. Nahum Sarna uh, explains it this way. The new insight they gain is only the consciousness of their own nakedness and the shame is the consequence. The guilt and shame caused Adam and Eve to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. The word translated presence is the word for face. The context portrays them responding to the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Genesis 3, 8a. Here Yahweh has taken on human form and is apparently walking as a human would in the garden. Thus, it is not just his spiritual presence they are hiding from, 
but his physical presence as well, his literal face. They can no longer be face to face with God. As we trace the thread of this motif throughout Scripture, we will see that God's redemptive plan allows his people once again to have this face and face intimacy with him. My conclusion from this narrative in Genesis 2 is that the appearance of the person's body will correspond to his relation with God. In a state of pure righteousness, the body and mind is not encumbered by sin or shame, and there is no need for clothing. In a state of sin, the body and mind seeks shelter from the view of others and from God himself. Moreover, nakedness is a sign of God's judgment. The integration of the image of God makes the human body a vessel capable of reflecting righteousness or shame. This is very similar to the conclusion of Gerard von Rod. The marvel of man's bodily appearance is not at all to be expected from the realm of God's image. This was the original notion. The whole man was, was created in God's image. The integrative view of the image of God and the human body may explain why the Old Testament views the human body as having physical significance. This means that every organ in the body has the capacity for spiritual functions because they are part of the whole. And examples of this would be the heart and the kidneys. The kidneys were often described as the heart and mind of a person. Of a person which could be troubled. Job 19:27 and Psalm 73:21. Theologically, this view of Adam and Eve's embodiment of a state of righteousness of sins reflects the biblical view of personhood. Genesis unifies the soul and body of those made in the image of God, a biblical robust theology of personhood and identity will not divide soul and body. The early Christian theologian Augustine, A.D. 354-430, also arrived at the conclusion that intellect and matter, mind and body, come together in irreducible unity to form the human being. So the response to holiness and sin in the body is a reflection of this kind of unity, this particular unity, this unity. The image of God, image Dea, is integral to the unity of the human constitution. The status of being made in the image of God is what makes Adam and Eve unique among creation. Again, drawing from Augustine, we may also conclude that the image of God is at the core of the identity of the human person. The exercise of dominion over the earth is carried out through the unity of soul and body of intellect and matter. After the fall into sin, it is the status of being made in the image of God that allows persons to have a consciousness of the nakedness of sin and righteousness. This discussion naturally raises the question, what happened to the image of God after the fall in the Garden of Eden? This question has been the subject of many theological treaties. Here, we may only address it in a short manner. Martin Luther and Lutherans, after him, argue that the image of God consisted of righteousness and was therefore completely lost after the fall. John Calvin disagreed and saw the image of God as something more holistic, encompassing 
encompassing the natural abilities of the body and the spiritual qualities of original righteousness. Calvin stated the whole man was created in God's image and institutes 1, 15, 3. For Calvin, it is only the latter spiritual qualities that were lost or require renewal. This view comports with the unified perspective of personhood we saw in Augustine's theology. Whether or not people are made in the image of God today is a yes or no. Question is not subject to degrees. I affirm yes, that all people are made in the image of God despite being spiritually dead apart from faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1-5 Exegetically, this conclusion that all people are made in the image of God is supported by James 3.9. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The Greek word for likeness is the same Greek word used in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 1.26. Thus, James makes the argument that the tongue cannot be used to speak in one manner toward God, and another manner toward people who hear God's image. Further, Christ himself is the goal of this renewal of the image of God. Those who are a new creation through faith in Christ are putting on the new man, which is being continually renewed into the knowledge according to the image of God, of the one who created him. Colossians 3.10, my translation. The body's of Adam and Eve first reflected their purity and righteous state before the Lord. Their bodies responded to the state of righteousness with God by being without clothes. They enjoyed a freedom from shame by being naked and unaware of their condition. They literally embodied holiness. After the fall into sin, the bodies of Adam and Eve are immediately objects to be covered because of their awareness of sin. The embodiment of shame and attempt to cover the body with leaves is just a small window into how sin later affects Adam and Eve's family. The important conclusion here is that their bodies reflect the relationship with God and they had to hide from his face. Using some imagination, one writer notes how awful it had been to face the Lord God when he found them. How hard to look him in the face. And yet, he has given them clothes to wear. 